we're here to defend and to promote public education, we're the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, otherwise known as the DOCS. If you want to find out more about us, we have a website at www.adogs.info. The last week has been full of very interesting news. For decades, the dogs tried to tell the Australian public and through the Australian media that the private schools were taking the public schools to the cleaners, that the public schools were going to end up as the residualised schools, if they survive, for the private schools onslaught. There is big trouble in Australia at the moment and it's recognised. But fortunately, the facts and the figures are coming out through a gentleman called Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools in, in Canberra, who himself used to work for the Productivity Commission. And we're going to start off today with a submission to the Productivity Commission inquiry on philanthropy written by Trevor Cobalt. Over to Andy. Submission to the Productivity Commission Inquiry on Philanthropy. Save Our Schools, SOS, welcomes the Commission's draft recommendation to end the deductible DIFT recipient, DGR, status of school building funds. The draft report makes a compelling case to end the tax concession for school building funds based on four clear reasons. One, there is no clear rationale for the concession that was provided when private schools did not receive government funding. Any rationale that existed in the 1950s has been overcome by huge increases in government funding. The concession has outlived its usefulness. Private schools received a huge range of funding programs by the Commonwealth and State Territory Governments. Two, the benefits of DGR status accrue to individuals connected with the schools, such as students, parents and alumni, rather than providing community-wide benefits. Three, DGR status is not an effective or efficient way to deliver government capital funding to schools. There is no prioritisation of or systematic assessment of government funding for capital works according to need. Funding capital works through DGR status does not align with current funding principles which purport to be based on need. And four, the DGR status of school building funds depletes the revenue base of the Commonwealth Government unnecessarily. SOS agrees with the Commission's finding that the DGR system is not fit for purpose in relation to school building funds. Tax-deductible donations to school building funds are heavily concentrated in high-fee exclusive private schools. They are a lucrative source of income. For example, data extracted from school financial reports to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission show that 50 of the most exclusive private schools in Australia raked in $461 million in donations over the period 2017 to 2021, an average of $92 million a year. The Scotch College, Victoria, raised $32.5 million over the period. Scots College, New South Wales, $31.8 million. Melbourne Grammar, $26.7 million. Shaw in Sydney, $25.4 million. And Christ Church Grammar in Western Australia, $25.1 million. The large part of this was through school building funds. In 2021, these schools also received $539 million in government and recurrent funding. DGR status serves as a taxpayer subsidy for an arms race in ornate school facilities. The luxurious facilities of elite private schools supported by taxpayers through DGR status are in a league of their own. Ultra-modern science centres, libraries, auditoriums, theatres with orchestra pits, multiple sporting ovals, indoor Olympic-sized swimming and diving pools, gymnasiums, tennis courts, wellness centres, equestrian centres, rowing tanks and boat sheds and underground car parks. The library designed as a Scottish baronial castle at the Scots College in Sydney is a classic example. As the draft report states, these subsidies are not assessed according to need. These donations also reduce the tax burden of the donors, so even more money goes to private, not public benefit. They serve to perpetuate inequalities over generations. DGR status has supported exclusive high-fee private school foundations to accumulate multi-million dollar assets. For example, Shaw raises funds through its Shaw Foundation, which has assets of $42 million in 2021. The King's School Foundation has building scholarship and bursaries funds and assets of $50 million. Melbourne's Grammar raises funds from its Foundation Endowment Fund with assets of $56 million and a billion building fund. Geelong Grammar raises funds from its Endowments Trust with assets of $31 million, a scholarship foundation with assets of $40 million and a building fund foundation. Scotch College Victoria has numerous trusts and beneficial funds that provide funding for the school. Indeed, it has so many that it had a special act of the Victorian Parliament passed in 2001 to enable it to pool the investment of those trust funds in one or more common funds to minimise administrative costs of operating each fund and increase its investment income. The Scotch College Foundation has assets of $100 million. 
As usual, in defending their subsidies, wealthy private schools refer to less advantaged private schools that do not raise as much money to spend on infrastructure. This defence ignores capital funding programs operated by the Commonwealth and State Territory Governments. These programs are more likely to be subject to some assessment of need, although not always. The draft report recommended a clear framework of principles to govern the future operation of the DGR system. It proposed that eligibility for DGR status should be based on the following principles. 1. The activity is expected to generate net community-wide benefits that would otherwise likely be undersupplied by the market. The activity improves access to goods and services, including for people on lower incomes, in line with general government objectives for a more equitable society. 2. Providing government support for the activity through tax-deductible donations generates broader net community benefits than provided by other government funding mechanisms such as grants. And 3. The activity is unlikely to create a material risk that tax-deductible donations can be converted to private benefits for donors. Any private benefits need to be sufficiently low or incidental to the act of donating relative to the benefits available to non-donors. These risks may be heightened for activities for which there is likely to be a close nexus between donors and intended beneficiaries. SOS welcomes these reports and recommends they be retained in the Commission's final report. The Commission should not be swayed by the political campaign being orchestrated by private schools to protect their privileges, but which has failed to substantiate any net community benefit for continuing their DGR status. The Commission has a long tradition of independent evidence-based policy advice grounded on rigorous analysis rather than a political expediency. It is hoped that the Commission maintains its analytical independence and integrity. While school building funds are the main source of donations to private schools, these schools also operate a variety of other funds that are eligible for tax-deductible donations. They include broad function foundations, library, scholarship and arts funds. These funds play a similar role to building funds in private schools in that the benefits go to those associated with the school rather than provide wider community benefits. For example, scholarship funds are used to poach high-achieving students from public schools to improve school rankings and to enrol students with talented sporting abilities to achieve greater success in the intense sporting rivalries between exclusive private schools. It is surprising that the Commission did not assess the role of these funds according to its principles for determining whether they provide a community benefit. It should be a task for its final report. The Commission's findings apply just as much to other tax-deductible funds operated by private schools. SOS recommends that the Commission should assess these funds against its principles and its framework in its final report. Another feature of tax-deductible donations for private schools is that they are a lucrative source of income that is not included in the assessment of their financial need for government funding. This is a major flaw in the current funding model. This exclusion means that private schools, especially the high-fee exclusive schools that draw the large part of donations, are even more overfunded than official figures reveal because their financial need is overestimated. This is an egregious oversight that benefits private schools and their families and is a huge misdirection of taxpayer funds. SOS acknowledges that exclusion from DGR would apply to public schools as well, but few public schools have DGR status and their income from building funds is relatively small. However, the DGR system presents similar equity failures in the public system as with private schools, albeit on a smaller scale. It means that funding is not prioritised according to assessment of need. It is likely that public schools in more advantaged areas attract more donations for building funds than schools in disadvantaged areas. Direct government funding is likely to be a much more equitable and effective mechanism for upgrading infrastructure facilities in public schools than relying on supplementary ad hoc funding through the DGR system. In summary, SOS recommends that the Common Commission retain its recommendation to terminate DGR status for school building funds in its final report, and that it also recommends ending DGR status for school foundations, library, arts and other funds. And I couldn't agree more. Back to you, Jean. Thank you, Mandy, and we'll have a bit of a break now. 3CR is radical radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward subscribe. Well, as we've been telling you on this dog's program, we hope you're still with us listening uh, for the last two weeks. 
uh, there's been a lot of pressure being put on the Albanese government to come good on funding for public schools, which are underfunded, while private schools, particularly the wealthy ones, are overfunded. And in the age and the um, Fairfax papers this last week, there has been an exposure of the extraordinary overfunding of wealthy private schools, which we'll deal with next week. But um, Jane Caro, who is a great public school supporter from Sydney, has written a very interesting article, A Simple Idea, Fully Fund Public Schools. And uh, Sorrel's going to tell us all about this. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. This article is written by Jane Caro, originally published in the Saturday paper, and is entitled Simple Idea Number 22.5, Fully Fund Public Schools. In the past couple of weeks, Australians have been confronted by some unedifying behaviour around private schools. Social media and cartoonists had a field day over a video of parents and grandparents from Sydney's Newington College weeping over the idea that girls might invade the hallowed halls of their 160-year-old publicly subsidised private school. Girls, even your nicer class of girls, is still a bridge too far for some. Then there were reports private school principals were up in arms about proposed changes to their tax deductibility status for donations, which amounts to more than $1.1 billion of extra revenue in a year. A Productivity Commission draft report has recommended taking gift recipient status from school building funds. Given schools such as Newington charge fees of up to $42,000 a year, it's rather hard to think of them as needing charity, or public funding for that matter. This is especially obvious when you consider most donations to public schools do not qualify for tax deductions. In 2021, the OECD reported 41% of government schools in Australia could be classified as disadvantaged, compared with 3% of Catholic schools and only 1% of independent schools. Under successive governments, the social segregation referred to in the report has only grown wider. The Turnbull government cemented it into place while claiming to do the exact opposite. It legislated an 80-20 split in funding, with 80% of the public funding for private schools coming from the federal government and the other 20% from each state. Funding for public schools would be neatly reversed, meaning state schools would be largely funded by state governments, which are less able to raise revenue. The results were entirely predictable. No public school in Australia, by a handful in the ACT, is currently funded to its minimum school resource standard, SRS. Every private school in Australia, by a handful in the Northern Territory, is funded above it, some way above it. On average, there is a 5% shortfall between what the governments should give public schools and what they do. There is also an accounting trick that cheats public schools out of their full funding from states, courtesy of the Morrison government. But more about that later. With Labor now in power in every state of mainland Australia, as well as federally, public education advocates began to hope that things might start to get a little fairer at least as far as the SRS, the calculation for public funding required for each student in a school, was concerned. Henry Rahendra, president of the New South Wales Teachers' Federation, said, With respect to our students, the nation and our collective prosperity, this is the best opportunity for Anthony Albanese to distinguish himself from failures of past Prime Ministers, namely Scott Morrison, Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott. Hopes were raised further when the Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, commissioned the independent expert panel review to inform a better and fairer education system. The panel subsequently authored the Improving Outcomes for All report. Sadly, a chilling little sentence on page 8 of the report gave warning. The panel has not considered issues of funding, as this was outside the terms of reference for the review. If it wasn't so tragic, it would almost be laughable that a review into fairness could proceed while explicitly excluding any reference to the rotten core of our absurd and utterly unfair school system. Fortunately, the panel refused to entirely ignore the bleeding obvious, as it noted a little further into the report. 
the fact that inequality in funding persists and is expected to persist in nearly every jurisdiction is an issue that requires urgent action. The first discernible result from the review's work has been a deal between the Western Australian Government and Clare to increase the federal government's funding to public schools in the state by 2.5%, bringing its share to 22.5% by 2026. The state government will also increase its share to 77.5%, making Western Australia the first state to fully fund student places. It's a start, I suppose, but it is galling to think that just getting to the barest minimum of funding, the SRS merely measures what each state school needs to do its job adequately, is so unusual in this country. Indeed, the other states have uniformly rejected the same deal, insisting the federal government should be paying more. By their calculations, the deal being offered by Claire represents about half of the funding increase actually needed. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns was unequivocal at a press conference in Cabian the other day after the Western Australia deal was announced. I hope we haven't hit a brick wall. We need the Commonwealth Government to up their contributions to public school funding, he said. The Gonski amount needs to be supplied, and the reason for that is they have deeper pockets. If the Commonwealth Government can afford to fund the already overfunded private school sector, surely there's a moral obligation for them to bring the chronically underfunded public sector up to the minimum standard. Surely they should use the country's tax revenues, of which they levy the majority, to help properly educate young people. State governments have work to do too. Thanks to a loophole created by the Morrison government, the states also underfund public schools. According to Trevor Cobalt, National Conveyor of Save Our Schools, the current amount of money supplied by state governments to state schools is overstated by 4%, and it is still inadequate, even with that miscalculation. Costs such as depreciation and school transport are included in the SRS for public schools, but not for private ones. Donations to private schools are not included, and nor is the so-called Choice and Affordability Fund of $1.2 billion over 10 years. Australian school funding is completely biased against public schools, Cobalt says. Karina Haythorpe, federal president of the Australian Education Union, believes, We're not going to have a genuine funding agreement as long as the 4% remains. It's a fudging of the books, even if the agreement says 100%. The unfairness is so stark and the outcomes so devastating, the improving outcomes for all report includes a table showing that Australia is now second worst in the OECD for increasing concentration of disadvantaged students in disadvantaged schools. Surely the time has come for root and branch reform, not simply more fiddling around the edges. So what is stopping politicians from making these obvious changes? First, it is fear from the religious lobby. The church is utterly against changes to school funding. Once, churches supported their schools. Now, as pews are empty and those people registering no religion grows exponentially, it is their schools that prop up the churches. They are big and important business, a key asset for a once powerful institution bent on maintaining its power. Second is the fear of parents. A group of voters, the British author Lee Elliott Major defined as opportunity hoarders. These are the sort of parents who stood outside Newington College, clutching placards, decrying the girls who might come through their gates. They are the sort of parents who want to keep things like properly funded educational opportunities for their own children and those like them. Major also calls them pointy-elbowed parents, a vivid description of the parents determined to make sure their children are at the head of any queue, who regard any dollar given to children with actual needs as a dollar taken from their own. This is education as a zero-sum game. It's selfish nonsense. The original Gonski Review was meant to deliver a needs-based, sector-blind funding system for Australia's children, regardless of how lucky or unlucky they had been in the lottery of birth. Thanks to the political influence of the pointy-elbowed, 
it has resulted in the exact opposite. When you decide to make the wealthiest school sector majority funded by the wealthiest level of government, you have decided on a sector-based system. When you make the most underfunded schools dependent on state governments, even when they are struggling with the vast majority of the neediest students who are the most expensive to teach, you have decided on a needs-blind one. After all, the poorest states are poor for a reason. They have poorer populations and higher percentages of people, including children, with higher needs. If we are to do anything about generational underprivilege in this country, if we want to improve outcomes for all, the federal government needs to get serious and properly fund schools. To be fair, everyone has now agreed the Northern Territory faces a unique set of educational issues, and a special deal is being struck with it, fingers crossed. However, needy children are needy wherever they happen to live, and too many of them year after year are being left behind. No country should allow any amount of pointy elbows to push those children and their lifelong education opportunities to the back of the queue. An excellent article by Jane Caro there. Back over to you, Jean. Thank you, Sorrel, and uh, we'll have a bit of a break. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Well, we hope you're still listening to the dogs. As we were telling you before the break, up at Melbourne University, there was a very interesting conference about what's happening in education in Australia. And Jane Kenway, who has uh, been making interesting noises for a few years now, uh, has uh, given a paper but also written about it, and here is what she had to say. Timid thinking no longer cuts it. Change is needed now. Thanks, Jean. And this article is from the Edu Research Matters website. Timid thinking no longer cuts it. Change is needed now. By Jane Kenway. Their buildings are substandard, cheap and poorly ventilated. Their classrooms are under-resourced and uninviting. Their gardens are sparse and bleak. Their play and sports grounds are inadequate, frequently small and ill-equipped. Their students often struggle at school and their families often struggle at home. Money is scarce, employment and housing are insecure and good health care is usually unaffordable. Their teachers work harder than most because their students need more than help than most. But these teachers don't receive anywhere near the support and recognition they deserve. Many such schools are government schools, yet they are left to make do with minimal resources and minimal care from state and federal governments. They have been pretty much abandoned, left to deteriorate, not properly helped to prosper. Instead, these governments have allowed the private sector of schooling to grow without limit, depleting struggling government schools of the material and human resources they need for their students to flourish rather than flounder. These schools and these kids are part of the long tale of underachievement that characterises the Australian schooling system. But the tale's problems can't be addressed in isolation. They are the tragic effect of much bigger problems. Australia's schooling system is among the most privatised and least equitable in the world, and it underperforms on many indicators. New opportunities for equitable, achievement-oriented change in Australian schooling have arisen in 2023. We now have a progressive national government, an equity-sensitive federal minister for education, and the national school reform agreement is being renegotiated. The time is thus ripe to reconsider and reconfigure the faithful intersections between school funding, equity and achievement. This requires a critical examination of the vexed relationships between the public and private sector and federal and state governments. On Monday, the Melbourne Graduate School of Education hosted a policy symposium and public forum called Funding, Equity and Achievement, which interrogated these intersections and vexed relationships. The symposium room was packed with 75 experienced education policy analysts, members of key stakeholder groups, and people from state and federal governments. Ten eminent thinkers, including speakers Professor Barry McGaw, the Honorary Dr Carmen Lawrence AO, and the Honorary Verity Firth AM, shared their views and the public forum attracted over 200 participants off and online, and Melbourne University's Twitter feed had over 3,000 views. 
The Gonski Report of 2011 was a touchstone for discussion at this event. All agreed that its funding solutions to the problem of equity and achievement have since been seriously watered down. Some argued that the political timidity of the National Labor Government, the power of the private schools lobby and the sectional interests of the states were ultimately responsible. Gonski Light was the result. Yes, needs-based recurrent funding arrangements were a result and the focus on needs was welcome, but ultimately, as many policy experts at the symposium showed, greed replaced need. Gonski was always in the light side, otherwise insisted. It was constrained from the outset by an invented funding architecture involving state, Catholic and independent school systems. This architecture, they argued, is a policy construction and convenience, yet it is treated as immovable and untouchable. The implicit message to the Gonski review team was don't mess with the private schools. Historians in the room shared examples of the formidable power of private schools backlash politics and of their serious electrical consequences. The state schools abandoned by the governments. So began an unjustifiable pattern of school funding. This is known as the 80-20 split. The wealthier federal government provides 80% of funding to private schools and 20% of funding to state schools. The poorer states and territories do the reverse. And here is the kicker. The federal government meets its funding obligations to private schools and constantly provides them with lavish top-ups. In contrast, the states and territories seldom meet their funding obligations to state schools. Speakers at the symposium provided an avalanche of carefully researched numbers which left no doubt about the serious funding inequities. Slide after PowerPoint slide showed how private schools have been consistently overfunded and how state schools have been consistently underfunded. A vicious funding circle was identified. The more resources the private sector gets, the more it grows. The more it grows, the greater its market dominance and share of allocated resources. Along with this is a sense of entitlement to automatic funding. In turn, this has led to the private school sector opening new schools and upgrading and expanding existing ones at will. This sector has thus enjoyed unfettered growth, becoming even bigger, more middle class and more segregated from wider Australia. Few people in the room agreed with the funding split that has allowed this to happen. Many firmly believed the Commonwealth should more equally share its funding benevolence with state schools. And for this to happen, they thought, a national schools resourcing body, as proposed by Gonski, should be established. This would oversee funding for both public and private schools, together. The relationships between the sectors would be in plain sight. Public funding to private schools is untied. They are not required by law to provide any wider public benefit. They do as they please, despite the copious amounts of public money they receive. The symposium audience was shown how the wealthiest private schools draw on their funding excesses to fund their infrastructure excesses. We wondered if such overabundance could be justified in educational terms. We agreed it was more about market signalling than student learning. So why fund it? Other questions arose. Should public money be conditional on private schools democratising their fee structures, entry policies and governance practices? Yes. What can stop them from draining the state school sector of money, reputation and the best teachers, students and parents? Cap their growth for a start. Properly fund all state schools so they can be the very best they can be. The policy symposium provided unequivocal evidence that increases in private school funding has been at the expense of funding for public schools, especially for struggling schools in struggling locations. Such underfunding, we agreed, leads to underachievement. Indigenous kids, country kids, kids with disabilities and kids from low-income families underachieve because they are under-resourced. They are under-supported because they are underfunded. Struggling schools in struggling locations have less money to spend on the bare necessities. Additional resources are necessary to allow them to meet their complex needs in the best ways possible. Distinct and distinctive interventions are required. Ken Boston, a member of the Gonski Committee and former Director General of the New South Wales Education Department, said as much back in 2017. They need smaller class sizes, specialist personnel to deliver the appropriate tiered interventions, speech therapists, counsellors, school family liaison officers, including interpreters, and a range of other support. And that support requires money. You can't deliver education as a genuine public good without strategically differentiated public funding directed at areas of need. That's what Gonski sought to achieve. Such under-support is sometimes driven by a naive policy mindset. It goes like this. It's not the money that matters, but what you do with it. 
Money and what you do with it matter. It is not an either-or situation. Serious concerns were expressed that the current federal government might not live up to its policy rhetoric. People feared it might adopt a target and tinker approach, safe, simple and unlikely to make much difference. Time and again, people called for systemic change. Presenters shared international studies that convincingly show how achieving equity at the systemic level leads to systemic improvements in achievement. Put equity first and achievement follows. Further, segregated education systems concentrate disadvantage. This, it was shown, has all sorts of deleterious effects and not just on the schooling of disadvantaged kids. Social cohesion depends on social mixing and where better to learn to mix than at school. The shared case study of Poland's dramatic rise in school results is attributed to its introduction of comprehensive schools. Many agreed that, despite its limitations, the Gonski Review made hope possible. State school supporters united behind the slogan, I give a Gonski. Now such supporters must unite again to save state schools from the residualisation caused by private school expansion. And the federal government must be prepared to stand up to the private school lobby, which has neither the public interest nor the national interest at heart. Timid standard arrangements and conventional thinking no longer cut it. Change is urgently required. And again, I could not agree more. Back to you, Jean. Well, Jane Kenway isn't the only one uh, saying that uh, things are just not good enough as far as funding for public education is concerned. Bonner has written something called School Funding is Back in the News and Dale's going to tell us about that. Thank you, Jean. I've got an article here from the Pearls and Irritations blog by John Menadieu. It's by Chris Bonner called School Funding Back in the News. It's our own Groundhog Day experience. When it comes to school funding, we end up doing the same thing over. Jason Clare's promise to fund all public schools towards their entitlement might bear fruit, but what if nothing else changes? The background always matters in the never-ending school funding saga. The 2012 Gonski Review established an excellent mechanism in the School Resourcing Standard, the SRS, which is essentially an estimate of the public funding required by each school to meet its students' educational needs. Alas, it came on top of pre-existing stupidity with the federal government mainly funding private schools and the states mainly funding their public schools. Dividing funding obligations between Commonwealth and the states and territories has a chequered history. Even half a century ago, Commonwealth school funding created an opportunity for the states to ease out of some responsibilities and inconsistency reigns. In 2012 and 13, the Labor government made separate arrangements between the states to facilitate Gonski funding, and it further fell apart when the Abbott government advised the states as adult governments, according to Education Minister Christopher Pine, to do what they liked. When it inevitably began to fall over, the Turnbull government firmed up an arrangement which had the Commonwealth funding 20% of public of public school costs and the states 80% with the reverse for private schools but old habits die hard and the states started counting some dubious education expenditure as part of their obligation and then the Morrison government revived a very old habit of making special deals with the private sector. It was never going to work. Years ago the Grattan Institute's Peter Goss summed up the problem. The federal government has locked in a model where every private school will get fully funded by 2023, whereas very few government schools will ever get fully funded. By 2030, we're going to be having the same argument. It's all predictable from now on. He was wrong in one respect. It is falling apart much earlier than 2030. Jason Clare deserves some respect for returning to unfinished funding business, but the Commonwealth will only fund half the SRS gap, and it has unleashed another round of fiscal feuding in our federal or feudal system. The headlines last week told some of this story. It begins in just one state, an echo of the Labor rollout of Gonski funding. In a bit of an overstatement, the ABC reported the deal with Western Australia to fully fund 
fund its public schools. Then, The Guardian reported how other states were rebuffing such a deal, with The Age and Herald pointing to a reigniting of Australia's school funding wars, for good reasons, including that the funding offer fell considerably short, that they didn't hold back and the Greens called for a halt to school funding accounting tricks, neatly summing up in an editorial in The Age. Meanwhile, The Australian revived another hoary old chestnut in its headline, $3 billion tied to lift in learning. The payoff for extra funding is to include improvements to teaching and student well-being. No surprise in that in 2013, Labor Gift wrapped the Gonski funding into a package of expected school reforms. The latter resonated, but apparently didn't sufficiently work, hence the forever focus on bigger, better and brighter school reforms. School funding has become transactional. Justice and equity take second place behind demands for a pound of flesh for every dollar. The current funding initiative is still welcome. Jason Clare is the best chance at the right time and a bit of trench warfare between levels of government might yield even more. Furthermore, the suggested school reforms have at least been scrutinised by both the Productivity Commission and the recent review to inform a better and fairer educational system. Interestingly, one long-term pattern has been somewhat reversed. School reforms are often paraded to distract from tougher challenges. This time around, the funding is the news. The reforms seem to be coming second. But the reforms are important and would be good to know how much attention the government will pay to the recent review's report, Improving Outcomes for All. For the first time, a review of schools has pointed to the growing segregation of school enrolments as a problem that needs to be addressed. Indeed, it states that the current system entrenches educational disadvantage, in the process making it less likely that other reforms will realise Australia's long-standing ambition of equity equity and excellence. The implication is that while full SRS funding is critical, our whole framework of schools is built around a whole raft of active and passive enrolment discriminators, including fees, entrance tests and much more. Instead of delivering, it consistently divides. The funding will fall, sh fall short in more ways than one if we continue to ignore such deep-seated problems. Indeed, we're going to be having this same argument and it's all predictable from now. Back to you, Jean. As you will notice that none of them are actually questioning the fact that state aid, all of this money is going to private schools to such a degree that it would be just so easy to take them over and make them public schools. The dog's position differs from most of the people who are now writing about funding. We say that there should be not a penny go to uh, private schools. We're not very interested in all the so-called needs policies, which have been gamed, have been made into greeds policies. It's interesting they're now saying that they've been made into greeds policy. They're taking our idea. They've failed. They'll always fail because the private schools are parasitic on the public system and if you give them money, they will bring down the public system and that is what is now happening. So the dogs uh, have stayed with their position since 1964. No state aid for private schools. And... Uh, Dale has got a very interesting article for you. Up there in Sydney, well, some of these wealthy private schools really are way, way, way back in the 19th century still. Boys and girls are supposed to get a different education. And this is a fun story. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article here by Michaela Thea Charis titled Parents, Former Students Distraught by Newington College's decision to allow girls to enrol. A small group of parents and alumni gathered outside an all-boys Sydney private school in protest of a decision for the college's college to become fully co-educational by 2033. The disgruntled group of about 20 protesters gathered outside Newington College in Stanmore with picket signs as students made their way to the front gate. Two police officers were seen standing by, as well as campus security. 
The 160-year-old all-boys institution announced that it would be transitioning to a co-educational system in November, allowing girls to enrol to ensure the college remains a vibrant contemporary institution in step with the society it is part of. The protesters today expressed their outrage around the decision, with one former student telling news, I'm an old boy, my son's an old boy, and the intention was always that I'd have a grandson and I won't bring him to a co-ed school. I'm totally distraught by this catastrophic decision by the council, another said. Others said they were worried male students would be stripped of opportunity if girls attended the schools. The protesters called for a change in headmaster and school council. It's been handled really shockingly with really no concern or consideration for the parents or families who are actually the fee payers, Kerry Maxwell, the mother of two former Newington students, said. However, in a letter sent out this afternoon, Principal Michael Parker denied those claims, saying that there'd been a thorough consultation process. The consultation process in 2022 was very extensive. It included, but was not limited to, 40 two-hour consultation sessions with hundreds of stakeholders, parents and students, in February and March of 2022, he wrote. The sessions were robust, vigorous, productive and revealed all sorts of strongly held views. I know this because I sat in on all but two of them. He added that students who disagreed with the position were all given the chance to directly meet with members of the College Council to air their views. Most of them took up this opportunity and it was extremely valuable to see that their feedback was heard directly. I also met with two dozen classes to take questions in the weeks after the decision, he said. A former student who wished to remain anonymous told ninenews.com.au he could see both positives and negatives to the school going co-ed. For primary school, I'm 100% for it going co-ed. I think it's important that kids meet and learn to interact and make friends from all cultures and genders, he said. When it comes to the secondary school, I think that that's where some of the issues may arise and unfortunately it will be the girls that might experience more negative effects of the switch. I think the protests are a bit of an overreaction. I can understand that some parents feel that they have paid for a certain expectation of a product, a single-sex education, and now that has been changed. But all other reasons for parents to be upset by this change, I don't agree with. Parker said that despite the protests, students still had a great first day back at school. It's been a good day here inside the grounds of Newington. We're planning for tomorrow to be just as good, and all the days after that too. Newington College has also addressed several concerns on its website standing by the decision. Our students will enter a world that will require them to walk and work alongside all genders collaboratively, respectfully and empathetically as colleagues, employers, employees, partners, parents and friends, the website reads. We believe the best way to prepare them for these roles is for different genders to learn alongside each other in an everyday, unremarkable way during their childhood and adolescence. Newington College is a private all-boys school that currently hosts over 1,900 students from years kindergarten to year 12. School fees start at $24,000 from kindergarten and increase to about $42,000 per student from years 11 and 12. Well, I think that you could get uh, more bang for your buck by uh, sending your child to a public school where they will learn alongside all genders and classes and cultures. And it is a government education that is gold standard. And you don't have to pay the equivalent of a new car every year just to have your child grow up and learn how to live respectfully next to women and people of other genders and cultures so it's a real no-brainer there but interesting to see the private school parents getting their hackles up at the thought of their precious boys having to learn alongside ugh, girls sorry anyway back to you Jean. well thank you Dale. perhaps in a few years new england just must just might catch up with most public schools 
We're now going to Jeff, who's taking us overseas. He's going to take us to the UK and Africa. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And we're going to start today in the UK, where there's a story from Sky News. This is from Becky Johnson, and it's about children who have special needs not getting attention from government schools. It's called There's No School for My Child. Parents of pupils with additional needs turn to unregulated education. Children with additional needs who have fallen through the cracks of the education system are being taught in innovative settings, but their alternative schooling is completely unregulated. Like many eight-year-olds, Madeline enjoys playing with her dolls at home. Unlike most children her age, however, it's how she spends many afternoons while her peers are in school. Madeline is not on the roll at any school, not because she's home educated or through choice, but because she has autism. Her anxiety means she needs a high level of support. Every school approached by her local council in West Yorkshire said they were unable to meet her needs. There wasn't a school that could accommodate her level of need without disrupting other children, her mother Emma says. We believed that they contacted about 11 schools, possibly a few more than that, Emma says. They received all the replies back and they were negative. With no state school options, Madeline's parents were given a budget for education other than at school, known as EOTAS. It means her mother has to give up work and find places for Madeline to learn outside of the recognised school system. I believe that the education system, as it is now, is archaic, and I believe it is failing children with autism, she says. We we were left with no other option. There wasn't anything else. Madeline's situation is far from unique. Figures from the Department of Education show last year that there were 8,400 children with EOTAS. Many are now being taught in places that are outside of the recognised education system. After carrying out her own research, Madeline's mother found a setting run by two mothers of autistic children who are both trained teachers. They have turned a room at Upway Holiday Caravan Park in in a remote part of West Yorkshire into a classroom and have named the setting Bud at Upwood. Kate Hudson, head of provision, said, I was in the position a few years ago where my daughter could not attend a mainstream school, so I decided there was a gap that needed filling and hearing other people's stories of where parents are left with with a child or young person at home and nothing is provided for them. It was just a a decision that had to be made. In the classroom, Madeline and the other children who all attend on a part-time basis receive one-to-one tuition. Madeline's mother says it's the first time she's been able to access education without experiencing anxiety and meltdowns. We feel like we can see light at the end of the tunnel now, she says, but the setting is part of a controversial sector known as the unregistered alternative provision. There are places that offer teaching, but because they're part-time and have very small numbers of pupils, they don't need to register with the education watchdog Ofsted. It means they're largely unregulated and it's not known how many of these settings there are across the the country. It's estimated that around 20,000 children attend them and many have special education needs. Ofsted, that's the Office of Standards and Education, so the number of placements has been increasing since 2017, but the exact number isn't known because they're not overseen by the Department of Education, local authorities or the education regulator. In some of the settings, Ofsted is concerned that children are provided with low standards of education and there are a range of safety and safeguarding concerns. Georgina Durant, who works as an SEN consultant providing advice to families and schools, says they need to ex- they exist to meet a growing need. Quite frankly, these unregistered alternative provisions are propping up the education system because we don't have places for these children, Ms Durant says. Obviously, there are going to be some brilliant examples of alternative provision that's unregistered, but there's also, because it's not registered, because there's no oversight on this, how do we know that they're doing a good job? How do we know these children are being well looked after? These are very vulnerable children with special education needs and disabilities, she says. They may not be able to communicate. And we're trusting these children in these settings with these people that we don't know as, as much about as we should do. Yet the demand for places at these settings can be partly explained by the numbers. Figures from the Department of Education show the number of children with SEN, special education needs, increased by 87,146 between the years 2021-22 to and 22-23. But the number of state-funded special school places rose by just 7,017. More and more schools are turning children away, says head teacher. However, that doesn't explain why mainstream schools are refusing to offer places to some children with, edu- with additional needs. Head teacher Simon Kidwell, who is president of the National Association of Head Teachers, says he's hearing more and more of schools turn- turning children away. He accuses the Department of Education for creating perverse incentives within the system. 
He explains schools that do not accept more, that do accept more pupils with special education needs find it more difficult to go and reach those very high results that some schools reach. It's also the perverse incentive of funding as well because we have to go and fund the first £6,000 in our school for every child with additional needs, he says. Among the other head teachers he meets around the country, Mr Kidwell said the number one concern for the next election, for the next government, is how they're going to resolve the issues around special needs. Madeline's mother agrees. It's absolutely a funding thing, she says. Not enough money has been ploughed into education, but the expectations on schools have grown. I know that our local primary school would have done anything they could to help and support Madeline, but they're not given the right funding. A Department for Education spokesman told Sky News, we want all children to meet their full potential, and councils are responsible for making sure there is appropriate education and support for all children in their area. Where a child has an education, health and care plan, it is usually best for them to be educated in a school or college. For a small number of children, this will not be the case, and local authorities may decide it is in their best interests to be educated elsewhere. To support local authorities, we are increasing high-needs funding for children and young people with complex needs to a total of over £10.5 billion in 2024-25, and an increase of over 60% since 2019-2020. Anyway, that's an interesting article. I think that's a problem that exists all around the world. Um, and Australia could uh, possibly take note of those issues as well. I think they're certainly underfunding here for special needs education. Now, we're unusually, we're going to go to Africa. We're going to leave America out this week. And this is actually an article from the World Bank, and it's by Victoria Kwakwa, Vice President for Eastern and Southern Africa, and she's been addressing the education crisis in the region and the urgent need to accelerate action. She says, Our vision is for all children and the youth in eastern and southern Africa to have the education and skills to realise their potential and contribute to the sustainable development of the region. In eastern and southern Africa, 62 million children, adolescents and youth are projected to be out of school by 2030. Without substantial action, approximately 89% or 122.8 million of school-aged children will be learning poor. Overall, nearly 9 in 10 children in sub-Saharan Africa struggle to read by age 10, a global concern exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Positive transformations are happening across the region. In Kenya, under the Tusum program, students in grade 1 and 2 improved their reading in Kiswahili by the equivalent of roughly 3 to 5 years of schooling. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the elimination of primary school fees in public schools has resulted in 3.7 million more children gaining in access to education, marking a 25% increase in the enrolment in public primary schools. Similarly, Tanzania's results-based financing education program led to an additional 1.8 million students enrolling in primary schools. These efforts have significantly boosted enrolment. African countries are also facing the pressing challenge of equipping its young and rapidly growing population with quality education and technical skills. It's estimated that up to 12 million young Africans are entering the job market every year. By 2050, the sub-Saharan Africa will have the largest and youngest workforce in the world. Several countries are responding to labour market needs. Rwanda, for example, is providing upskilling opportunities for over 34% of youth aged 16 to 30 years in NEET, N-E-E-T, neither in employment nor in education and training. And Tanzania is tripling annual technical and vocational education and training, TVET, enrolment to 1.5 million trainees by 2030 and incentivising innovation in priority sectors such as digital technologies and green skills. It's clear African leaders are committed to reducing learning poverty and preparing youth for today's and tomorrow's job market. At the Africa Human Capital Summit in July 2023, 43 African leaders signed the Dar es Salaam Declaration and pledged to increasing accessibility, affordability and quality education and improving literacy rates to 75% by 2030, especially increasing adolescents' girls' access to secondary and tertiary education. They also pledged to provide training to an additional 19 million young people to acquire digital skills for jobs by 2030. In Eastern and Southern Africa, the landscape of education finance reflects a complex interplay of challenges and opportunities. While strides have been made to enhance access to education, financial barriers persist, hindering the region's progress. 
Insufficient public funding, coupled with economic disparities, poses a significant hurdle in ensuring equality of access to education for all. This issue is particularly pronounced in rural areas, where limited resources and infrastructure exacerbate the education finance gap. By prioritising effective and efficient financing for education, Eastern and Southern Africa can unlock the potential of its youth, fostering a brighter future and contributing to sustainable and inclusive development. As of 2023, the World Bank was engaged in 35 projects, allocating a total of $6.33 billion for education financing in the region. So that's actually a good news story about public education and the really meaningful differences it's hoping to make um, in Africa. And um, we wish them the best here from the dogs, uh, and we hope that this struggle for good public education is a worldwide thing that we, we hope to we hope to see more and more and more of all around the world. Anyway, with that good news, I'm going to pass you back to Jean. So we hope you're still listening to the dogs, and if you want to find out more about us, you know where to go, www.adogs.info. And, of course, there are podcasts on the 3CR website if you want to uh, listen to our previous programs. But we come to the good news story for today, our great state school, and Andy's going to tell us all about it. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Well, congratulations to Wanthaken Primary School. Wasn't that a lovely story? And uh, if you looked at their NAPLAN results, you know they're really quite special. If you want to, if you want to see change, or uh, if you want to take off uh, somewhere that's not uh, not the city at the moment, but um, our time has gone. So it's just up to me to say thanks to Dale and Andy and Sorrel and Jeff, and uh, from all of us here at the Dogs, it's bye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.